For a child, there is no place more magical than a circus tent. But let's face it, the wonder a child feels pales when compared to what the father of the child feels. The dad who bought the cotton candy and the zillion dollar glossy program and the plastic hat and the foam finger. The father who is as equally wide-eyed as his child, staring up at the tightrope, at the men and women in tights who defy the odds, gravity, and death on a wire. Chances are the last name of the family in the sky is Walenda. Since the 1700s, the flying Walendas have been the undisputed masters of the high wire. Today, the tradition is carried on by Nick Walenda. Walenda spent his life on the wire. As an adult, he continues to push the boundaries of what is possible, walking over both the Niagara Falls in 2012 and the Grand Canyon in 2013. This, despite the tragedies of 1962, when two of his family members fell to their death, or 1978, when his grandfather Carl did, and even this February, when his sister fell 25 feet performing an eight-person human pyramid in which Nick was part. She survived. Barely. He managed to hang on. He's also the father of three children, none of whom have taken to circus life. That doesn't mean they avoid danger. One son is a marine, the other son is a football player. But they all do walk the wire installed on the family's 15-acre estate in Sarasota, Florida. Interviewing Nick was fun, of course. Who doesn't want to know what life is like as a tightrope walker? But what I also realized, and what you'll hear, is that he really avoids introspection. This, I suspect, is a function of his high wire act. If he doubted himself even for a second, if he stopped to ponder what exactly he was doing up there and why, he probably would have toppled over long ago. But I was curious how that confidence serves him as a father, as a man, as a husband, and at what cost to us here on the ground. Welcome to the Fowlery Podcast. My name is Joshua David Stein. I hope you enjoy yourself. Nick, you might be the best-known daredevil in the world, but do you see what you do as something that's risky? At this point, it's something that's in my blood. My mom was six months pregnant with me and still walking the wire. Yeah. So I've been walking a wire longer than I've been alive. So for me, it is a, it's kind of a comfort zone, if you will. Now, of course, when you blindfold yourself or when you walk over the Grand Canyon with, you know, 53 mile an hour winds, it's not comforting at that point. But on a wire in the proper setting, it, it's something it's, I feel at home for sure. Yeah. I w- so I was reading, of course, about all of your world records and all this, these to my mind, just absolutely batshit crazy things you do. But I also realize that from your standpoint, it's not not normal to be on a nickel-wide wire. Yeah, You're as is. comfortable on that as I am sitting in this chair now. Very much so. If, again, in the right setting, when you add winds and weather and conditions and the, the cable, movement in the cable for longer walks, it's not as comfortable. But on a wire in the proper conditions, yeah, it is very similar to walking on the ground. And and I say that carefully. One of the most dangerous things about what I do, and w- even in Big Apple Circus here, I'm about 30 feet above that ring. And, of course, the dangers are real. I've lost seven family members, several of them from this same height, walking a wire. But um, so, you can so become, What do you mean the same height? The same, from 30 feet. I've lost several family members. Now, of right. course, we walk at all different heights, but here in Big Apple Circus, we're walking at that height. And um, so the dangers are real, but the danger that I face is you can become complacent because it becomes so normal. My great-grandfather said life is on the wire and everything else is just waiting. And for us, we, we, we become alive when we get on that wire in front of the audience. It's where I love to be. You want to be comfortable but not complacent. Is that correct? Because- That's correct, yeah. You have to be confident and comfortable. Um, the biggest challenge that we probably face, and I say we because there's a team of us performing here, we're doing a a feat that my great-grandfather created back in 1947. He performed it till 1962. It's the seven-person pyramid on the wire. 
1962, there was a tragic accident where two of my uncles fell and were killed. One was paralyzed from the waist down. The biggest challenge is the mental challenge. You know, we can do it a million times in the backyard, 10 feet off the ground, but then you go up 30 feet, uh, it becomes much more of a challenge. What are the thoughts that are sort of the ones you want to avoid? Is it well, excitement? I think, I think in life we want to avoid the thoughts of negativity, and that's very much the case on the wire. There is certainly a lot of adrenaline, and, and anyone will tell you, whether it be a cage fighter or a wire walker, you've got to be able to control that adrenaline. But also just the psyche itself tells you you're not supposed to be up here, and if you fall, you're going to get hurt. Back in February, we were training for another world record, the eight-person pyramid, and as we were training, it was two days before opening, we were going to break the world record for the highest four-layer eight-person pyramid on the wire. And as we made our way out, we began to lose our balance and fell to the ground. I am in the back in control of that. So I had to watch all that happen before my eyes. And um, There's nothing you could do at that point. There's, there's nothing other than grab the wire if you can. And, you know, thank God I was able to grab the wire, a couple others. But five of my family members hit the ground. And, and your sister was... Is- Quite seriously. Yeah, she she had some very serious injuries from a broken uh, calcaneus, which is basically the heel came off, broken arm, but then she broke every bone in her face. She has about 72 screws and plates in her face now, and um, but she's doing great. She's back up on the wire already, which is amazing, and this was just February. And so. Yeah, I read a quote that she said, when you're a driver and you get in a car accident, you don't just stop driving for the rest of your life. Yeah, that's right. I think we, we all know the analogy of you fall off the horse, you get back on the horse again, and that's important in life. There's a lot I find interesting about the <laughs> Willendas, but one of the things really is this idea that To us, to me, you're a daredevil, and what your family does is kind of crazy just from a logical standpoint. Why would you want to do that? (laughs) I respect that opinion, yeah. But for you within the family, it's normal. You've been doing it for seven generations, so like within the bubble of the Walendas, of course your sister is going to get back on the wire because that's what she does. That's right. Yeah, yeah. for us it's life. Again, I go back to that quote of my great-grandfather, life is on the wire. It is home. There's something about it that is almost magical. That's the only way I could describe it. And people, like you just said, think you're in, like you're insane. Why is that? How's that magical? There's something very special about being on that wire. I didn't mean insane in a in a negative no, way. I, I, mean, I absolutely understand. Like what I think what you do it for a living and in the circus, but also the other sort of athletic feats. Sure rely on just a sheer spectacle and the danger of it. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, we have we have people that watch, just like people watch NASCAR for the accident. That's part of the, the thrill is if there's an accident, but you don't want anyone to get hurt, but you want to be there if it happens. And that's very much my TV specials. I'm walking across the yeah. Grand Canyon. People are like, well, I don't want to be watching the next channel over because what if something happens? Right. It's and almost think, like on one side they're balancing the wanting the thrill in you to fall. Yep. And on the other side they're balancing trying to be good human beings and not wanting Absolutely. you to fall. But yeah. that's boring. <laughs> that's yeah. Like, I mean, I think that's – again, that's the way that the way that the human psyche works is there's yeah. some fascination in that. It's like the crime scene. You don't want to see it, but you kind of look out of the corner of your eye. It's, it's just the realities. Going back to that accident in February, mm-hmm. when did you know – Something was hinky. Two seconds before it happened. Everything was absolutely perfect. We'd been training. We'd done it many times in training. And uh, it felt solid. Everything felt great. You know, my mind wants to go back to that accident over and I've relived that accident hundreds of times. Yeah. And there's times where I'm getting ready to do the seven-person pyramid and I'm fighting it off out of my mind. You know, our minds are powerful. Last night I was performing in Lincoln Center. And as we were walking out of that wire, everything felt great. 
and within within a split second, it wasn't great anymore. Yeah, and it felt like everything. Although froze. two seconds feels like a long time. Well, that's what I was gonna say. It, yeah. it feels like a lifetime. Everything froze and everything was in slow motion. I don't remember getting the platform and down, but I had friends that were there watching, and they were within. 12 feet of my sister. Now I was 30 feet up, nearly 30 feet up. And I had to get back to the wire. I was out in the middle of the wire, back to the wire and down it. And I beat them to my sister. No idea how I got there that quick. They don't know how I got there that quick. Yeah. Um, but again, everything seems like it just immediately, it immediately, it's freezes, it stops, it's slow motion. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it's fast forward at a thousand miles a minute. I think I've read that you don't like the term stuntman or dare to... It's not that I don't like it. I just feel like that what I do is an art form. I think one of the challenges of the circus world as a whole, and, and, and respectfully, I stepped out of that world and did these major spectacles yeah. for TV. I'm still doing those. But I stepped out of that all because my passion was in that ring, performing under the big top. But I think that circus is an art form. I think that that the media has painted circus. And when I say media, I'm talking about the news media who calls the White House a circus because it's chaotic, whereas a circus is actually a very organized art form. It's, it's quite contrary to what they painted as. But from there to, you know, I've, I've raised three children and in the, still in the process of raising a couple of teenagers, but that, uh, you know, we'll watch cartoons with them and they'll paint the circus as a cheesy circus clown riding unicycle, you know, honking his nose. That's not the circus. It's an art form. You know, we're right there with the ballet and, and at the Met with the opera, and it deserves to be there. And and one of the challenges that our industry faces is people look at it as uh, there's again, there's a negative connotation to it. My goal is to change that. Right. And to make circus cool again, if you will, because the next generation or the demographic from 14 to 24, that is really who I try to hit goes, I'm not going to go to a circus. My friends will make fun of me. But the truth is, if their friends go with them, they'll all be fascinated. I remember going to the circus as a little kid with my mom and dad, yep. and it never seemed current to me. Correct, but, you're 100% but but right. but but that's what I wanted, and I know yeah. this is like a contrary well, see, point of view because but yeah. when I went to Ringling Brothers at Barclays for the last sure. time they were in New York, yep. it was like it was very modern and like they some of the clowns had like iPads and sure. there was this theme. Yep. Whereas really, I'm more attracted to the kind of feats of Wonder. I just feel correct. Well, I think there's a way to, to again to tie all that together. When I walked over the Grand Canyon, I wore blue jeans and a t-shirt. But yeah, I'm still walking a wire. The same. The risks are the same. Although yeah. I was a lot higher. Uh, you know, it it sounds horrible, but it just take me longer to die basically to fall that far. Yeah. It's just the reality. But uh, so uh, you know, my my goal is to become relatable. Uh, yeah. as a circus performer because I think when you see uh, Ringling Brothers or when you saw Ringling Brothers, it is there's a long distance, there's separation. Um, and my thing is, and that's what I love about the tent, is you're 50 feet away from the performers at all times. You can see me sweat. You can see the stress on my face, all of and that. And that's so compelling. But also the way that the way that we dress, the music that we use, the lighting. Look, Cirque du Soleil has done an incredible job yeah. with that, of taking the circus to the next generation. And and you're 100% right, is circus has been stuck for 100 years, and it's just in that same cycle. Yeah. Well, you can't progress that way if you don't change. That's the exciting thing about the new Big Apple Circus, is the owners, the new ownership team, really sees that we've got to take it a new generation. This year is a tribute to the 40-year anniversary of the circus. They're amazing. There's a guy doing a quadruple somersault on the flying trapeze. Only nine people in the world have ever done it we close with the seven person pyramid there's other amazing acts in between that fill that time um 
But we're going to take it a whole new level next year to a whole new direction, which is, again, I think the circus has to go. In fact, I know the circus has to go that direction because Ringling Brothers wouldn't have shut down if they would have changed, in my opinion, with the times. Yeah. I think they sort of, the family as a whole, the Felds sort of, in my opinion, lost interest. Yeah. Well, they also got all the different things on ice. When I was there, I remember watching the acrobats. Yep. Because I'm sure that they also work on the other tours yep. and thinking, man, yeah. that that sucks to have devoted so much of your life to doing yeah. flips on regular, you know, with shoes or yeah, whatever, and yeah. then be like, oh, now try it with ice, ice skates. skates. Yeah. I think the art form, it's about it trying, it has to become relevant again. Hold that thought, Nick. We'll be right back after a quick message from our sponsor, Hum by Verizon. The Fatherly Podcast is brought to you by Hum by Verizon. No one wants to be stranded on the side of the road, especially when you have little ones in the car. But since the road is an unpredictable place, it helps to have Hum by Verizon, the connected car system that assists and empowers drivers. Now you can check your car's health from your phone. And if you have questions, you can connect to a mechanics hotline for expert, unbiased advice, and even get quotes on repairs. Need help on the road? Hum works with a nationwide network of mechanics and can send a tow truck out to your location. And if Hum detects a crash, it can automatically notify emergency services. It's a smart way to stay on top of your car's health and keep your family safer on the road. Get home and get where you're going. Learn more at hum.com. That war that happens inside us, the viewer, watching someone like you walk, but it's more things that are dangerous sure. and less things that are just impressive because they're impressive. Yep. That uneasy reaction is also really thrilling. Absolutely. So. When you're yeah. doing a high wire act, I don't need any setup to know that that's dangerous. When I see someone doing a quadruple somersault, mm-hmm. that's so far above my realm of anything I could ever do. Do I really know the difference between a triple and a quadruple? I've, I've you know, it's yeah, like yeah, that makes sense. It's hard to yeah. Sometimes it's hard to count them because he's turning so fast. To be yeah, honest, yeah. So it's like you have to that aspect. You have to be set up to be impressed because it looks so easy because sure. they're so good. Yeah. In a high wire act, you have the just the well, physicality of, oh, I understand a fall. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, you understand a person walking and yeah. a person walking on a sidewalk or, or a wire the size of a nickel. Yeah. I think you can sort of relate act. to that. I mean, that's just oh, like that's so just smart. like yeah. some of the world records that I've broke uh, have been broken on bicycles because people can relate to riding a bicycle. Now, can you relate to riding a bicycle 130 feet above the ground on a thin cable? No. But, but there's still a connection. The walking, that's such a good point that anyone can walk. The fact that is you're just walking high up, yeah. no safety net on a tiny wire. Yeah. I, again, I think people can put themselves up there and go, wait, I can walk too. But man, I could never walk on something that small. The truth is, I think anyone can walk on a wire if, if they're willing to dedicate. But I also believe that you can do anything you want in life if you're willing to dedicate enough time and work hard enough. So the lead in of that question about not being a stuntman is that I think – you're also an athlete, but to me, just hearing you talk about it and knowing what you've, you've gone through and talking about it now, it's more like you have become a master of your own thoughts and your mind. I can imagine you thinking before you go on, oh, that thinking of the accident thing, oh, that went perfect. I, fe- I feel good now, but that felt good then. Yeah. So if that felt good then, 
it feels good now is that, you know like you can get in this real discursive absolutely we all have that i mean we see the analogy we've seen it our whole lives of the angel and the, and the you know the devil on the other side the other shoulder that's that's the reality of all of our minds and we can allow that little devil to tear down our psyche or we can allow that angel to build it up and that's that's a struggle that's real amongst everyone whether you're walking the wire or whether you're struggling in your marriage or whether you know it doesn't matter what you're dealing with whether yeah. you have a health issue and you're fighting cancer the power of the mind is just unreal. My grandmother is a great example. She was diagnosed with stage four or stage five cancer. I believe it was stage four cancer. They told her she was going to live another two to three months. That was it. She lived another five, almost six years. And really the doctors attributed it to the fact that my grandmother never accepted that, that she had cancer. She realized it, but she took cancer as, well, it's just like a cold. And that's not because she's foolish. She just is that strong-willed. Yeah, I can fight a cold. I can I can beat a cold. And she did for many years. The power of the mind is is pretty overwhelming. When you were growing up amongst this very famous family, was that mental aspect part of your upbringing? And how was that communicated to you? I think so. I think a lot of it was just in positive, being positive, you know, just getting rid of the negativity. I, I think, again, for some reason, our minds are programmed to negativity. It's just the way we're directed. We always go to negativity. If we get in, I get in a fight with my wife, I think about the 100 arguments got in, not the other 17 years we've been married that have been great. Yeah. It's just the way that our minds are programmed. So my, my parents really instilled, you know, to, to always focus on the positive things and not go down the road of the negative. And, and I think, again, anyone in life, this stuff works for everybody. Yeah. You know, it's, it's powerful. You were saying you have three children. I do. How old are I they? I have a 19-year-old that is a Marine, believe it or not. I have a 16-year-old that is a high school football player, and then I have a 15-year-old daughter. So two boys and a girl. Well, the upper two are both engaged in risky Yeah, professions. definitely. In fact, I got a phone call the other day. He's down in my hometown of Sarasota, Florida, playing for Sarasota High School, and he was at the hospital because he had gotten a concussion. Yeah. And that's uh, just the reality of, of the sport that he plays. Do you have any reservations about him playing football we all have dreams and passions we need to pursue them i think that's the problem with our world is mom and dad say no you can't play because you're going to get a concussion no you can't climb in the tree you're going to fall out and break your arm you got to be able to live life otherwise we might as well all live in a bubble there's no sense in living that way so of course there's stress of knowing that he's there playing football and he's hits hard and he's like his dad and he doesn't give up and and you know he's going to Give it his best. Yeah. Knowing that every game, that's scary because he's not going to back off when that 250-pounder is coming at him. He's going to go right at him. But it's the same with my 19-year-old. He's a Marine. I mean, Is he deployed he's, or is he? he is, he's currently based in California, but most likely, you know, soon he will be. Yeah. And your daughter, are any of them interested in joining no, the Flying Melendez? All of them are amazing on the wire. I was just recently doing a photo shoot on the beach in Sarasota for uh, People Magazine. And my son was there, the 19-year-old. He was He was 18 at the time. And it was just before he was actually going off to boot camp. And he helped me set the wire up on the beach. And in between shoots, he was on that wire. And I walked up behind him and pushed him. And he stayed on the wire. Amazing how st- solid uh, he is how on the wire. How high up were you? Only a couple feet, not yeah. high. But just, and that's part of our training is we shake the wire. And, and when people aren't looking, we push the wire and do everything we can to distract them. Uh, I also the read that your, your parents shot BB guns at you while yeah, you were so, on the wire. <laughs> so everything from shooting, from shooting um, obviously they didn't actually shoot where it would go through my skin. Yeah. Uh, you know, they'd shoot me in the butt or whatever where I was wearing jeans. But 
throwing pine cones, throwing footballs, anything that you can do to distract. I mean, I've been stung by bees while I'm 100 feet up in the air. I've had birds land on my balancing pole. I mean, you name it, it can happen. You have to sneeze. All that has to be part of training, so you're prepared for every, anything that you might face. But How back about to if the you have kids, to go to the bathroom? Then you wait. Okay. <laughs> I haven't had that problem. I've had to go, but I've just waited, thank God. Yeah. But um, funny, my great-grandfather used to take reporters up on the wire 30 feet up, and he'd sit them on his shoulders and take them across. And he took this one female performer, and halfway across, she peed all down his back because she was so scared. <laughs> Comes but, with that territory, yeah, I so, guess. Yeah. But uh, back to, to my children, all of them are very good on the wire. Really, my sons, my daughter plays on it a little bit, but really, but none of them have any interest but as a parent, you know, people say, well, that's the, I'd be the eighth generation. They're not going to carry it on 200 plus years. I want my kids to do what they want to do. You know, you weren't pressured to go. No, in it. fact, I was pressured to not do it, believe it or not. I started walking a wire 18 months and just playing, just like all my kids playing in the backyard. But I started performing at two. I was in, I was brought out in a pillowcase into the ring by some clowns and dumped into the ring and I would do a skit with them. So I had my first taste of live entertainment at a young age. And I continued to perform all the way till I was 13 in the ring. And then at that point, I convinced my parents that I was had the ability and I could do it safely to walk the wire. And I started performing on the wire from 13 on. But because I was in front of an audience, I think any live entertainer will tell you, there's something about that. You get that bite and that's it. Me and my wife, my wife comes from nine generations of circus, the third oldest circus in the world. Erendira is her name. It's hard to pronounce. It's spelled E-R-E-N-D-I-R-A. It's a Erendira. Spanish name. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And her last name is? Vasquez. Vasquez. Ashton. Then, yeah. yeah. So Flying Vasquez and then the Ashton's third oldest circus in the world over in Australia. So well, my parents, if anything, you know, wanted me to go off to college and do something else. But I had, you know, I had the passion for performing. And the, and the reason why they wanted to, my mom released a book that was called The Last of the Walendas because she felt like there was no future in it. Yeah. And she's like, I don't want this book to be false. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, so... And, and that was actually more the publicist who wanted that yeah. spicy name, of course, of the last of the Willens. The last of the Willens, except my but, son. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, she really felt they really felt like the industry was sort of going away. When you were growing up, did your mom? Did the fact that her dad died in yes. an act? Her, actually, her grandfather. Her yeah. grandfather yeah, yeah. and her stepfather. So yeah. Yeah. So the fact that there was a lot of death in her family, based, you know, on this, did that affect how she raised you on and off the wire? I don't know. Because also, by, her. By, I, also your dad, your dad married into the correct. Will yeah. yeah, yeah, he married into it. He came from a circus school, the same one that some of the performers that are performing with me on Big Apple Circus right now came yeah. from. So, it's hard for people to comprehend outside of our family, but it's almost like a drug. Like this is what we love to do. You know, my mom is now sixty-two years old, and she still gets on the wire five days a week. It's like it's life to us. It's in our blood. It's in our genes. So. I understand why the outside would go, well, why in the hell would you allow your kids to do it? But why in the hell would you allow your kids to join the Marines, too? Because there's a lot of danger there. I feel yeah. like I'm more in control on the wire than he is in his position, for sure. Yeah, I said it before, but I do think that what is so compelling about your stories isn't just what you do is amazing, but the fact that to you it isn't amazing. There are times where I'm walking over the, you know, a city and looking down at little ants of people down on the sidewalk going, why in the world am I walking on this wire up here? So that, that kicks in every once in a while too. It's not fear. It's just like and, – and I've said it before to my wife while, during a performance like, what a weird thing that we do for an occupation. I mean I understand that it's unique and that it's strange. Yeah. But it's just what we do. 
You did a 25-minute walk, I think. I did, yeah, over the Grand Canyon. It was almost 25 minutes. Are you having thoughts like we are having now? Are your thoughts only about The Wire? Oh, no. There are definitely thoughts about life. I mean, I I did a walk over the Allegheny River in Pittsburgh. Yeah. And as I was walking, my kids were on the bridge, the Fort Duquesne Bridge, walking alongside of me. And I was up to their left about another 150 feet up. And they were arguing. And I remember looking down and going, they better stop that right now. <laughs> you know, that's just, yeah. I mean, I have normal thoughts while I'm up there as well. I mean, it's important that I stay focused, but certainly get distracted at times. Do you have any techniques that you use for? I guess the the answer is it's something that I continue to practice. Yeah. And a lot of people don't practice that all the time. Right. So every time I get on the wire, I'm practicing that. Yeah. So just like anything, the more you practice, the better you're at it. I also know that you're pretty religious as well. I am, yes. How has that played into... When I pray or I talk to God, it is a form of meditation. Mm -hmm. So it's somewhat relatable, I believe. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking, like, when you're walking, are you praying you're Christian? Yeah, absolutely. There are times that I'm praying for sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's part of that battling the mind. Yeah. Very and much also, so. if it's part of you, you are who you are on the wire and you are who Correct. You are well, and I say that often. If I get in a car accident, I'm saying the same prayers. Or if, if uh, you know, my son gets deployed, I'm saying the same prayers. It's, yeah. it's just who I am. The lessons that you've learned doing these feats, how has it affected raising children? I think that you learn to live life a little easier. Like, you don't take it as serious, if you will. And I don't mean to disrespect life because I think it's very precious. And I have no desire to, to lose my life performing. I, you know, I want to be 105 in a nursing home somewhere or in a bed next to my wife. So I have no desire. But I think that you, you forgive a little quicker. I think that you realize that we make a big deal out of nothing often. You know, we let a stub toe in the morning ruin our entire day, those sort of things. And I think that you learn to go, no, I'm not going to hold on to that stuff. Why would I hold on to that? Life is short. And how does that relate to raising I, kids? Well, I, I mean, I think it has been passed on probably from generation to generation of, you know, don't sweat the small stuff. Just just kind of live life. Yeah. I think it's the great way to live if you can live that way. And I'm not always great at practicing that, but I'm, I think I'm probably a little better than most. Yeah. Because of, because of the lifestyle that we do live. You guys are on the road a lot. We are. We travel a lot. It's funny. I told my daughter that I was doing this interview today. We were talking last night at dinner. And she goes, well, she was joking. She goes, tell him you're a horrible dad because I don't get to be home in school with my friends right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> so She um, comes with you when you're when Oh, you're yeah, coming. she travels. Yeah, so my kids generally would always come with me. But for the last, since 2008, that was when I, me and my wife headlined Ringling Brothers. Since then, I've been doing TV stuff so and motivational speaking. So I fly in and out. And they'll go with me often. Like, you know, we'll go to some pretty awesome places. I'll speak to a company in Hawaii or wherever. Yeah. And I take my family with us. But for the most part, we've been home. They've been home, you know, eight of the nine months of the school year. Yeah. So this being with Big Apple Circus is different. We're traveling. We're touring for 30 plus weeks. So that's a long time to be gone. So my daughter is now homeschooling. We have a tutor that, that tutors her. But, uh, and your older son studies. is in Florida. He is in Florida, but he comes up every break that he can. Yeah. But I, I think it's a cool lifestyle. I mean, they get to travel all over the world. They get to see things that most people don't. And that's, that's where I was getting at is, you know, I know a lot of parents are like, oh, you're going to, you know, you can't miss a day of school or whatever. And, and we're like, look, as long as you're getting good grades and keeping up, then you, it's okay to miss a day of school here and there. That's all right. We're not, 
that, I guess, uptight kind of parent yeah. of like that extremely strict. Now, trust me, they're very respectful and they're disciplined. And my my 16 year old wants to go in the Navy. So they're definitely they understand structure and, and, and crave it. Yeah. Yeah. So they get that. Um, and they're very, very disciplined and respectful. Family's got to be important and they got to be a part of that. And if they can't be a part of it, then you're doing something wrong. Because, again, one day they'll be grown up, move out on their own and and they won't be a part of it anymore. You grew up in Sarasota, right? I did. Which is a circus it is. town. Yeah, my great-grandfather moved there in 1920. He came to the United States in 28. John Ringling owned his house there. And my family stayed in John Ringling's house with him. It was a mansion, not just a house, like 24 bedrooms on the yeah. bay. And uh, he stayed with them for about three years off and on as they were in town. And then he built his own place and then helped build up Sarasota. He bought property all over Sarasota. And they would... The reason I believe why there's so much culture in Sarasota is because there were so many circus families from all over the world there, and they just made it home. So now yeah. the culture is amazing. The ballet and the opera and the circus is a major art form in Sarasota. I do think that the the perception of the circus is wildly different from the outside than what it feels like from within. Like I remember a couple of years ago talking to Jonathan Lee Iverson, sure. the yeah. ringmaster for Ringling, and there is a hierarchy and there's a structure in circus, which is, sure. you know, there's a lot of misfits, you know, who yeah. enter the circus because it's this different way of life. But there's yeah. a ton of structure. Oh, absolutely. And that's, and that's where I say when the media refers to chaos as circus, they're really it's really the opposite of that. It's yeah. organized. You you know, Ringling would come to a town with 300 people and they would they would build a city and be gone back in the day when my grandmother was here. They built a city. They they had 400 draft horses on tour with them. I mean, it was it was amazing what they had. And then three days later, it'd be gone, and you never knew they were there. Right. So if anything, it's it's amazing organization. It's far from chaotic. Yeah, I think what's so funny is you are the world's foremost high wire walker, and your sons rebelled by joining. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. instead of joining military. the circus, they joined the military. That's right. Yeah. We'll be right back with more Nick Willenda after a quick word from our sponsor TLC. When your baby has a baby, it's all hands on deck. TLC's new series, Unexpected, explores the ups and downs of three pregnant teens who are all children of teen mothers themselves. Parents and grandparents must step in and help them through this huge life change. Tensions mount as everyone has conflicting ideas for what is best for the young parents and their baby. Don't miss the revealing new series, Unexpected, Sundays at 10, 9 central on TLC. Stream live and catch up on TLC Go. Download the free app now. Do you want to do the fatherly questionnaire? Sure. These are a series of questions which we ask all of our guests. Okay, great. Starts off easy. Okay. <laughs> what is your name? Nick Walenda. Occupation? Funambulist. That means wire walker. What? <laughs> Funambulist? Funambulist. It means wire walker. It's a fancy way of saying wire walker. Age? I'm 38. How old are your children? 19, 16, and 15. What are their names? Yanni, Amadeus, and Evita. Are they named after anyone in particular? Not necessarily, just names that we loved. And yeah. all their names have different meanings. But And your wife's name is? Erendida. And your mom's name is Delilah. Correct. So there's a lot of cool names in the yeah. Walenda. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, think, you know, I think names are powerful. So you know, a name like Amadeus or Yanni, I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. And your daughter? Evita. Evita. And she was named after my wife's best friend, so that's why. Do you have any cute nicknames for your kids? Do I have any cute nicknames? Um, when they were younger, I did, for sure. But, you know, my 19-year-old Marine, when he called me Yanni Falani, he doesn't really like that. So, <laughs> um, But, yeah, I mean, definitely, um, 
Deus is what we call Amadeus. Yeah. And Evita is just Evita. Do they, like your 19-year-old when he's in the Marines, does he, yeah, his last name's Walenda? Walenda, yep. It's a famous name. Yeah. I mean, no, they... he gets, yeah, absolutely. He was very concerned in boot camp that they were going to find out he was Walenda and give him a really hard time. But he found out the last day that they knew who he was and they made a big deal about it, but like in a good way. Yeah. What do they call you? Dad. Used to be daddy, but as they go older, it's just dad. In front of my face, they call me dad. I don't know what they call <laughs> yeah. me behind my back. How often do you see them? Often. As often as I possibly can. Yeah. You know, as we said, my daughter tours with us. My son, in fact, uh, I fly home as much as I can. So I was home Monday and Tuesday. And then we'll fly home as many days off as we possibly can. So last couple days, uh, last time we had more than two days off, my wife flew to California. And then the next time we have more than that, I'll fly to California to see my Marine. So as often as, as possible. I mean, they are definitely at the top of our list of, of people to spend time with. When you were growing up, the Walendas were always close-knit? Yeah, as far as, um, well, I think in, as circus family as a whole is close-knit. You know, what we'll find on this tour, and we're just starting Big Apple Circus, is the whole show becomes a family, sort of. And you help each other out. Like I was in the nursery the last couple of days during opening, which is the beginning of the show because every performer is out in the ring except for me. So I was there with six of the kids babysitting basically. But you become a family. You help each other out. You have each other's back. And and that's kind of the way it is. But as a family life, as a whole, circus is an amazing family life because you're with your family all the time. You know, Um, when I got in trouble when I was a kid, it was go to your bedroom, but it was the back of the RV. So how far do you go? Right. What, What kind of things did you get in trouble for doing? Oh, man, what did I get in trouble for doing? Mainly just being a rebellious, you know, teenager, but anything, fighting with my sister yeah. or, or um, you know, mouthing off, whatever the case was. Not part of the questionnaire, but you're headlining Big Apple Circus. Mm-hmm. I was kind of talking to the ringmaster of Ringling yes. a while back yeah. about it. What's your relationship like as part of the circus family there? Look, I try to be a... A leader, if you will. I've been blessed with an amazing career, very successful, and I think that I'm looked up to widely, vastly by by people in the industry. So I try to lead by example and, and continue to be a man of integrity, but I also always remain humble. You know, as far as hierarchy, I think on a respect level there is, but I always try to, again, remain humble. And, right. and, and I don't, for example, I was, and I almost shouldn't say this, but I was in the ring raking it out the other day because the it wasn't smooth. So I don't, I'm, I'm just like anyone else. I'm, right. Yeah, I think maybe from the outside you see like you're, you know, the headliner. In this yeah, person, so it's not like I show work. up in the stretch limo that, you know, minutes before with my Perrier waiting for me. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm just like anyone else. Yeah. You know, if, if, it's, if, if it's available to me, it should be available to them. And I'm, I'm very big on that. Anybody that's worked with me, we've had our own tours that have toured the country over the last couple of years too. Me and my wife produce shows. And um, they'll tell you when we go out to dinner, they we all go out to dinner as a family and, and we pay for it. But we are together a lot. And again, we always respect the fact that everybody is created equal. Describe yourself as a father in three words. Wow. Three words. Is that it? Is that three words? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> goodness. I am certainly disciplinary. I am the boss. Um. But that's more than three words. Man, that's Disciplinary tough. is one. Okay. Disciplinary. Fun, for sure. And hopefully inspirational. I really try hard to inspire my, you know, again, they know the buck stops at dad. Uh, they call mom first because they know that mom is the pushover, if you will. But I'm certainly strict. Our kids are not, they don't have it easy. 
Yeah. But always want to have fun. Always want to, every amusement park we're there, uh, if it's nearby on our days off, that sort of thing. What are the things that cannot be violated in the Walenda household? There's definitely respect. I always want them to respect me and their mother. So there's no mouthing off, that's for sure. No talking back. Of course, that happens, but there's disciplinary actions that are taken, which has changed as society has changed. It changed. Yeah. You know, it, it used to be I used to get hit with the belt, and now it's you take the cell phone away. You know, it's <laughs> it's just a different day and age. But there, you got to you got to do. In fact, my 16 year old, the best discipline I can give him is not taking his cell phone. It's it's removing. He can't go in the gym. We have a, a nice gym in our house. He's not allowed in the gym. That's the best discipline I can give him. I mean, if you want him to straighten up, take the gym away. Gym yeah. privileges. So, again, each child is different in the way that you discipline them and, and of course, in their personalities and what you discipline them for. Uh, my oldest son was just, you know, he's like, I have a German shepherd. And, and you tell him he did something wrong and he will mope around for the next two hours until you give him a hug. That's my oldest son yeah. to the T. You didn't have to do anything much to him. You just tell him he was wrong. He's embarrassed. He's ashamed. And, and he'll, he'll make it right. So, and your um, daughter? She is, she is the tough one. Well, for one, she's the baby. Yeah. She's the only girl. And she's daddy's girl. And um, and she is the type, she's a lot like me. My mom would go to discipline me and I would make her crack up before she could smack me or whatever she was going to do at the time. My daughter's the same way. If I say, okay, I'm going to take away. I mean, nine times out of 10, I'm cracking up before I can get the final love. You're in so much trouble. Ow, right. That's, that's it's a good survival much, tactic. Yeah. It's very much her. So she's got a, a, an incredible personality. Um but with her, it's it's certainly the cell phone. Taking the cell phone away is is the best discipline. Describe your father in three words. Disciplinary, for sure. Let's see. He was very motivational to me, very much motivated everything that I've done. And a man of integrity, integral, I guess. Yeah. He, and now, does he? You still work with him? As I do. Your yeah. Yeah. Technical. So, yeah. Advisor. Yeah. He does. He does. He oversees sort of the all the rigging. And then also safety. He oversees that. He's kind of the final straw. So when I get to a point of, okay, it's 20 minutes till you're walking over the Grand Canyon and the wind gusts are at 65 miles per hour, I'm in a mindset that I'm walking from one side to the other and no one's going to stop me. No wind, nothing's going to stop me. He's the one who has, he's the sound mind that goes, you know what? The winds are a little bit strong. We're going to hold off a little bit. And you did hold off a couple of times or have you always? I have, I have not had to, I've never delayed a show more than 15 minutes. I've yeah. never had to. And that was because of lightning. But I train with worse. I've trained. So for the Grand Canyon, I train with 120 mile an hour winds. We have wind machines. And we train on a cable the same distance and uh, and same tension. So Do you go into the wind if the wind's blowing from one side? Well, you have no choice because it's coming from wherever. It's Mother oh, Nature. Oh, man. So um, you want it to come head on for sure, but it was hitting me from the side at the Grand Canyon. Yeah. The thought that it might not work out never crosses your mind. No. No, because once I get to a point, once I get to that point, I'm committed. I'm, I'm going yeah. no matter what. There's no turning back. It can be dangerous. I mean, my mind is like I get in a zone. I've been around major fights and I, it, I'm i not part of the fight. I'll step right into the middle and, and, and split it up. And like there's nothing. A gun a gun gets pulled. I walk or I've walked right up to a guy with a gun that pulled a gun. When was Because that? that's just about seven or eight years ago. That's just me. That's just I don't turn around. I don't once I have my mind made. Instead of being stressed out and freaking out, everything slows down and becomes slow and, and becomes very clear. Yeah. So I feel like Roger Federer talks about that, like the ball seeming really big and slow to him. Yeah. Because the way he perceives time yeah. is different. 
That's that's exactly. My mind is totally different in stressful situations. Like even the accident, for example, people freak out. My wife freaked. I mean, you see the situation isn't isn't pretty, obviously. Yeah. Um, and I I'm completely in control. I can check. I checked on everybody that was on the ground, saw who needed the most attention, dealt with that, dealt with talking to the aim. You know, I'm just completely calm and cool through all of that. Do you think that the stress goes anywhere? Like I hear what you're saying Gosh, is that you don't I, experience it as stress, but I wonder I if it know. goes somewhere. Um, I, I, it must go somewhere, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. My wife gets mad at me because whenever there's an altercation or something, I'm like everything. I'm like, I'm right there. And she's like, just. You want to fix it. Yeah. Yeah. Has it ever failed you? No. 38 no, years. It hasn't. Yeah. What are your weaknesses as a father? I'm very, very goal oriented. So I will focus on, so if I get a project, I work on that project till it's done. And I'll give you an example. This is going to sound goofy, but I, I love a clean, like I love everything to be neat and clean. So I love a clean manicured lawn. I've got 15 acres in Florida. I have somebody that maintains five of it. I went home three weeks ago to see my son. He was in school. He got out of school, but I was taking care of the yard. So I worked on the yard till 9 PM. I could have spent from six, from three to nine, six hours with him. I worked on the lawn. Those are sort of the challenges that I think I face is that I'm so goal focused that I can't step out of this. Right. It's and it, it's a real struggle. It it's gets you across the wire. Correct. <laughs> yeah. Correct. And you have a nice lawn. Um, yeah, exactly. What is your biggest regret as a father? Probably time. Even though I spend a lot of time with my kids, I feel like I could, as especially as you have one that moves out and becomes a Marine, spending more time with them. Yeah. What did you say to him when he said he wanted to be a Marine? I've told all my kids their whole lives, they've got to pursue their dreams and they have to, you know, do what they want to do. But I also, as a father, explained to him, here's the risks. Look at what you're getting into. No, do plenty of research. Again, just like when I prepare for a walk, I do tons of research, years often of the weather conditions so that I'm prepared for the worst case. So make sure you do plenty of research to make sure you're going in for four years at a minimum. Here's what Here's the worst case. And then I also brought in people that have had that experience that are either friends or mutual friends to sit down with them and go to dinner and say, here's what you're going to experience. Here's what you want. Here's what I would do. Here's how I would approach it if I started over. Those sort of things to educate them the best that they can. But again, if I were to take that, if I were to say, no, you're not going to be in the military, well, he's going to resent more than anything. Yeah, that dad didn't let me do what I wanted to do. So you have to let them, you have to let them be who they are. Even with my son not being with me and staying home because he really wants to play football, that was sort of a challenge. Do I make him? Do I force him to come with me? But I don't want him to resent me either. So fine, we'll wait. We'll find a way to make it work. I feel like, you know, this is a related question, though it might not seem like it. What is the ideal tension for a wire? So it depends on the wire itself. The wire at Big Apple Circus is tensioned to about 8,000 pounds. The Grand Canyon was 72,000 pounds of tension. So it really depends on the wire, the make of the wire, and the engineering. There's a lot of engineering that goes into what we do. And in terms of it being lax or tight, what do you, what's ideal for you as walking across it? So if it's too tight, it becomes like a banjo where it'll, it'll sort of, you'll kind of see like the wave go through it and come back. You'll see that if it's loose too, but there, there is a happy balance. It depends on the situation. So the Grand Canyon dropped down about 35 feet in the middle, and then we, I went back uphill. Yeah. If we had it banjo tight, what would happen is, again, it be creates as if you hit that wire, like you could walk up to the Grand Canyon cable after it was rigged, look straight down it and push it. And if you push it, you watch a wave go through the cable and come all the way back. If it was really tight, that wave would go really fast, just right. travel really fast back and forth. 
So there is a happy median of it's going to travel no matter how loose it is because it is a long, heavy cable. Um, what is the happy? What is the happy speed that you can that you can handle basically right. of that wave that's created in the cable? I just keep on thinking when you're talking about fatherhood, maybe because you are a wire walker. I'm just thinking, oh yeah, not too loose, not yeah. too tight. You can't tell him yeah. you can't do something, but you also don't want to give him so much. Yeah, freedom. That Correct. You don't instill your values. Correct. So that's why I think the importance was that they, again, that he was educated, that he knew what he was getting into, that it wasn't like he was going into it blindly. Yeah. That he knew, okay, here's what I'm getting into. Here's the commitment I'm making. Here's the dangers, the risks. Obviously, some of them are obvious, but not all of them are. So at least make sure that you know everything you're going to face. I've told my kids, I don't care what they do in life, as long as they always, as long as it's a job of integrity. Mm-hmm. And they maintain integrity, um, and they, they they do it to the best of their ability. What is your favorite activity to do with your children? That is your special father and kid thing. Well, with my boys, it was definitely sports. I love football, baseball, basketball. What's your team? Um, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, because I'm yeah. from from that area. But right. I always want to see the competition. I always like to see the underdog win. That's kind of the you're way an that, underdog right? kind of guy. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, that's so, always been my issue watching boxing. Is you always want the underdog to win, which kind of means you're always going to be disappointed yeah. up until that very last moment. You know? Yeah. So um, and with yeah, and with your daughter, with my daughter, we play board games. We just we hang out. We yeah. just do stuff. Um, but and then she she loves shopping. Of course, that's every. And you go with her. That. Yeah. What do you guys shop for? Uh, usually it's clothes, and I'm just there with the card to pay at the end. <laughs> but that's the other thing is they know their mom. They can get away with stuff with their mom. But when it's shopping, dad's the one who will always pay for stuff. Like, yeah. he'll get them more than – she's a little bit tighter. Yeah. Like, no, you can't buy that. And if dad's there, they're getting it, usually. What's been the moment you've been most proud of as a parent and why? I would definitely say uh, my son graduating as you know from boot camp, becoming a Marine. That is uh, – man, to serve our country and to be that selfless is pretty amazing, you yeah. know. To, I, I've always been very respectful of, of anybody in the military or, you know, with our police force and uh, EMTs. But, um, you know, to see your son go through that training, which is kind of like going through hell to get through Marines. Uh, you know, he went to Paris Island. Yeah. They become a Marine. It is not easy. Is um, um, circus pretty diverse? As far as. Cl- cl- yeah. Yeah. As far as culture. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, there's everybody from um, people from many Latin countries to, of course, Russia and all over Europe. And um, our ringmaster is an African American who is uh, one of my one of my best friends, actually. Who? Ty McFarlane. Okay. He was also on Ringling. Yeah, yeah, as a ringmaster. I was only asking because I think even I'm a dad as well, and trying to raise kids who are um, respectful of other cultures. Absolutely. Yeah. I think pushing that's... back when they need to push back and yeah. standing up when they need to stand up. And yeah, it's a challenge of course. Yeah. yeah that's it. I, I mean, I've, I've told my boys, you know, they, they, again, that's another area where I am probably a little different than a lot of parents, but there is a point where you do have to stand up for yourself. You know, you can't be a punching bag all the time either. And there is a point and I'm okay with that if, but as long as you have a reason, you never throw the first punch. Right. Yeah. So, and that's, I think a lot of parents are like, no, you can't fight. Well, look, the reality is there's times where you have to, you yeah. have to defend yourself and that's okay. What heirloom did your father give you, if any? What did my father, he gave me a lot of stuff. The the heirloom that I can remember is, is a knife that he gave me, a case knife that I still have. It's in my center console of my pickup truck. What, what do you use it for? What did he use it for? 
Uh, it was just a pocket knife that I he had always in his pocket. And yeah. when I turned, I think I was 13, he gave it to me, and I still have it. What heirlooms do you want to leave your children, if any? You know, I'm all about, and I don't know that it would be an, it's definitely not an heirloom, but I'm always about preparing for the future. So me and my wife have several companies that we're in the process of opening or have opened that are businesses that are successful that we will leave. We also own real estate that will be left to our children so that they're set up for generations to come. But that's really the point where I'm at in my life is we've been blessed and I've gotten pretty much everything that I want. So now it's about preparing for the next generation for my kids so that they can have that same life, whether it be a military or, or a football career, or, you know, my, actually my son who's 16 wants to become a doctor eventually, which was a goal of mine, which would be pretty amazing if he, yeah. if he followed suit. Describe the dad special for dinner. Dad cooks a lot. <laughs> they love when dad cooks. My wife's a vegetarian. She's always on a diet. She's all about physique and health and all of that. Um, so dad cooks nice, rich, hearty food meals, and yeah. mom is always like, you know, you're getting asparagus for dinner. What is your uh, your go-to? Beef stroganoff, and I make from scratch everything that I make, and I make um, like chicken curry, and I mean, I, I cook everything. So, But I love to grill. That's yeah. kind of one of my, just because it's easier to clean up, too. We covered it a little before, but are you religious, and are you raising your children in that tradition? I am. And, and yes, they um, they absolutely were, you know, every Sunday that we're home, we're at church. If not, we often watch watch our home church online or we'll find a church in the area. But absolutely. Yeah. And it's definitely been instilled in them, not forced in them. They have to make their own decisions. But um, Did you, were you raised religious or was, was it something yeah. you came to later? No, I was raised religious, went to a private Christian school growing up. Yeah. What is a mistake you made growing up that you want to ensure your children do not repeat? Wow. I, I honestly feel like all of my mistakes have led me to where I am in life. When we look back through our most trying times, that's what who created. That's right. That's how much, you know, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. That's very much the case of every every challenge that I faced. So I don't know if there is one necessarily. I think that, um, again, it's all on how you how you handle it. If life throws you lemons, what do you do with them? Lemonade. That's right. How do you make sure your children know that you love them? You know, I try to supply everything that they need. As a father, I think that's our job is to supply for our family and, and obviously mothers too. But I think I'm more of the the um, the physical, like I'll supply, look, if you need that. And they're not spoiled. Again, they have to work for stuff, but they have everything that they need and more. And again, preparing for their futures as well and, and to make sure that when I, you know, leave this earth and my wife, they have something still going for them. So, you know, I think that, and, and they all know that obviously that I, that I love them. I call them, talk to them on the phone as much as I possibly can. Mom's more of the physical affection and dad is more of the he's, practical. Yeah. Very practical. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Last question. What will become of the flying Walendas if your three children decide not to join? I have nieces and nephews that are eighth generation that are already performing. So they'll, the family will continue on without question. Yeah. The way that they have been raised, my nieces and nephews, I'm pretty sure their, their children will do the same. Okay. Well, Nick, thank you so much for joining me for the Fatherly Podcast. Thanks for having me. After a quick word from our sponsor, ADT, we'll be back with, oh, hey, science. The Fatherly Podcast is brought to you by ADT. Home isn't just a place. It's a feeling. The feeling that you're safe to enjoy the things that matter most. ADT lets you take that feeling with you wherever you go. Whether you are at your house, your business, or online, 
ADT helps keep you safe and secure with security systems, home automation, alarms, and surveillance, so you can feel at home wherever you are. Not sure where to start? Try the new ADT Security Starter Kit for only $49, including professional installation. Learn more at ADT.com. ADT. Home safe home. And now for what they call the small print. Let me bump this up to 12 point. 36-month monitoring contract required. Enrollment in QSP and EasyPay required. Only in select markets. Done. So that's it for security. Now back to my own insecurities with the Fatherly Podcast. Welcome to Oh Hey Science, where we bring our bewhiskered science editor, Josh Christian, to lay some knowledge on me. Because I have a deep hatred for sugar, based as it happens on science, I would never do this experiment at home, but that doesn't mean I haven't thought about it. I'm talking, of course, about Walter Mischel's famous marshmallow experiment, in which a child was given the choice of choosing one marshmallow now, or waiting for a few minutes, and receiving two marshmallows later. As we'll discuss, the study found better life outcomes naturally for those who wait. And this set off a whole body of research and changed our perception of delayed gratification from nurture to nature. I'm pretty sure if I set a marshmallow in front of my kid and told him, hey, wait for five minutes with this thing and you'll get two, it would be gone before I could even get the words out of my mouth. Does that mean I am the father of a child doomed to impulsivity forevermore? Should I start saving for retirement? I mean, obviously, yes. But because he'll never have his own shit together enough to take care of me? Josh, tell me something good, please. No, there's absolutely no good news at all. Is that right? (laughs) We don't do good news in this fact-based reporting that you keep talking about. Well, tell me what I should expect. Tell me what that experiment actually means. Well, the kids who wait for the marshmallow, we'll call them the kids who don't eat the first marshmallow that they see. If you're not the kind of person who eats the first marshmallow, you're going to, according to this study, have a lower BMI. That might be obvious. You don't eat a lot of marshmallows. But you also have lower rates of addiction. No, no, no. You eat twice as many marshmallows. Well, in the long run, you know, if you wait to eat more marshmallows, I guess that lowers your BMI. You have lower rates of addiction, lower divorce rate, higher SAT scores. They become more successful in the long run. Generally speaking, we can follow the kids who waited for the second marshmallow and find out that they're very successful. And the kids who ate the first one, not so much. Let's assume, for argument's sake, because I know my son, he would eat the marshmallow. It just means that you might need to teach your kid a little bit more about delayed gratification. There's ways to train this. What it tells you is that up until now, how old is your, your son? Five. So at five years old, what he's seen so far is that it pays to not delay gratification, that he's better off grabbing that first marshmallow. So that might be, not probably not in your case, but it might be because he's raised in a household where he needs to grab in order to succeed. There are plenty of children around the world who know that they won't be successful if they don't grab the first marshmallow. So some of that's conditioning from not pleasant situations. And sometimes it's just that he knows that if he grabs the first marshmallow, he's likely to get the second one anyway. Meaning, like, I'm a pushover. Right. So he knows that you say, I'm not going to give you a second marshmallow, but he's going to get 10 in 10 minutes, so it's not a real study to him. But what it probably means is that you need to work with him a little bit on his delayed gratification to, perhaps outside of the realm of the marshmallow experiment, teach him to wait. How does one teach one to wait? Exercises with your kid. Pretty much every time your child wants something, it's not necessarily a bad idea to tell them to give it five minutes and to make it a reward system kind of thing. You've got to pick rewards that they want and things that they actually would like to grab right now. So the marshmallow test really needs to be tailored more into a marshmallow styled therapy that goes throughout the entire life. And that is that you tell a child, I know that there's something you like very much and I'm going to give it to you eventually, but I want you to practice waiting for it. Do you always have to have the carrot? I mean, the stick is waiting. Do you have to have the carrot of 2x whatever they wanted to begin with? Or is it just you don't get it now or you get it later? What I've seen in the literature, the carrot's more important than the stick. Though what really matters is it has to be something they actually want, especially when you see the outcomes related to addiction. 
So the deal with addiction is that this is something that somebody really, really wants, and they're not going to kick it unless they know that even when they really, really want something, they can't have it. So in order to simulate this later in life, the sort of person who's going to decide to study for the SAT rather than do something they really want to, like play soccer, or somebody who's going to decide not to take that cigarette, even though at this point they feel their entire body really, really wants it, the only way to simulate that is with things people really, really want. It's actually one of the failings of the marshmallow experiment. I don't know if a five-year-old wants a marshmallow like an addict wants a drug or like a kid who should be studying wants to go out and play. Yeah, the whole premise of this experiment is funny to me because I hate marshmallows, not just... Maybe that's why you're so successful. Here you are, you have a radio show. It's because you didn't eat the first marshmallow or the second. Where would I have been if I waited? No. We have an editor who waited forever. Over at Fatherly, we have an editor who waited his entire life. They put the marshmallow in front of him. His parents thought it'd be funny to administer the test, and he just never took it. And they put down the second one and the third one. Never took the marshmallow. That's why he's the editor-in-chief. That's why he's in charge of fatherly, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I wouldn't be, it'd be the other way around. I'm his employee because I eat the marshmallow. There's a lot of kind of questions that have been raised about the study. I think not so much about the study itself, but more how it's been used because since 72, it's kind of taken on this huge cultural significance. Can you talk a little bit about the complications, not of how the study was executed as much as how we read into it now? Well, it's the nature versus nurture problem, right? So people see the results of this study, and they imagine that if my kid fails the marshmallow test, if I administer it at home, outside of laboratory conditions, because I'm a scientist, and I put a marshmallow in front of my kid and he eats it, that now I should, as you said, start saving for retirement. Um, And things aren't foregone conclusions like that. It's been misused because people think when they see an easy study design that they can try it at home and that tells them everything about their kid. It's true that if your kid has a serious problem that every single time they're asked to delay gratification, they grab the first thing that they see, that that's indicative of a long-term lack of success, that they're unlikely to do well in the long run. But people can't just run these experiments in their homes. You know, I was reading that a lot of the the students from the original study were all part of an upper-middle-class preschool. The experiment rested on a set of assumptions. I think you would agree that these are all designed on the assumption that kids behave in a rational manner. And it's, as you said, designed on the assumption that all kids are basically upper class, middle upper class children that are living the way that you imagine such a child would live. So you give a kid a marshmallow and we're assuming the kid believes that if he waits for that marshmallow, there will be a second marshmallow. And we assume that this child believes that there will not be a second marshmallow if he doesn't follow the rules. That works in laboratory conditions and that'll happen throughout life. We know that we experience things all the time or we know that there's a certain set outcome if I do or if I don't do. But in the real world, obviously, that's not always the case. As you mentioned, one of the co-authors on a subsequent study mentioned that she also worked in a shelter. And she said when she was talking to reporters about her study that the kids in her shelter, the smartest thing they can do is grab the first marshmallow. So you can't imagine that kid would pass the marshmallow test. At the same time, the child who knows I have to eat the marshmallow immediately because I might not get another marshmallow because someone else is going to take my marshmallow. This isn't a model of someone who's set up for failure. This is a model of someone who knows how to work a system that they're in. So that's a, that's a thing with a lot of studies that have this kind of methodology, though. They're, they happen in a vacuum. In a vacuum, this study makes a lot of sense. Given the way that they conducted it, it was a good predictor of future success of children. But we can't conduct such studies in vacuums. One of the things that I found really interesting is the study was conducted in 72. Since then, there's been so much written about our society's lack of impulse control, attention spans, all these things that would lead me to think that if you put a marshmallow in front of a kid today, you would have to say either get it now in one second or wait two seconds and you get two. The time frame would get shorter and shorter. Has what you might call the lack of impulse control writ large, if it exists, affected subsequent studies in that way? Somebody actually did a study on it and the answer is no, the opposite. Kids are getting better at controlling their impulses. 
which is just wild to me. Somebody took a look at every marshmallow study that's been done since 1960, and there were 20 plus. Some of them published, some of them unpublished. All underwritten by the marshmallow lobby? That's right. Some of them were actually cookies, it turns out, but as we said before, as long as it's a strong enough reward, it doesn't really matter. They could do it with anything. They looked at just the kids who gave in, how long it took them to give in. They found that every 10 years, on average, kids get one minute better at not eating the marshmallow. They take one minute longer to eat it. So over the course of 50 years, going back from 1960 all the way through one study done in March 2017. So that brings us right up to modern culture. What's even more interesting is the authors of this study really wanted to stick it to people who say that kids are bad with their attention. So they called up a whole bunch of child psychology experts and asked them, would you say that kids are bad at focusing nowadays? And they got the data, and everybody says yes, like 85% or something said that uh, kids definitely can't focus anymore. They would fail the marshmallow test by miles, minutes. It would take them seconds. Uh, and then they ran the study. They, they looked at the information. It just wasn't the case. Kids, if anything, are getting better. It's also really interesting is that they're getting better at around the same rate that they're getting smarter, as far as we can tell. IQ rates, studies have shown, go up about one-fifth of a standard deviation per decade, which is science babble for it's going up gradually. It goes up gradually at almost the exact same rate when we look at the amount of time people can wait before eating the marshmallow. But those are all within people who are choosing the first marshmallow, not giving in. Right. But, you know, choosing the first marshmallow after waiting for five minutes is a tiny victory. So when we leave the studio, should I go home with a marshmallow? What's my time better spent doing? No, because your kid won't believe you. Your time is better spent working on delayed gratification activities that make sense. Your kid's not really going to believe that you're not going to give them another marshmallow. And certainly they can get another marshmallow tomorrow. This isn't a big test in a cold laboratory with researchers that they trust but don't like. This is you. Well, I was going to set up like a – I was going to take out all of their toys from their bedroom, dress in a white coat, pretend I don't know them, and give (laughs) – And we're going to do a follow-up on, like, childhood trauma. We can talk about that then. This is how you traumatize children. (laughs) Don't run experiments on your kids in general. It doesn't make any kind of sense. You don't have laboratory conditions in your home. They don't trust you to begin with in that way. And um, all you're going to do is cause long-term damage and waste your time. What you should do is take a look at the main outcome of the study, which is that people who delay gratification tend to do better. And be mindful about that when you're raising your children. The best way to do that is to model delayed gratification. Subsequent studies of the marshmallow test looked at what the parents do when they face the marshmallow test as a predictor for what would happen to the children or whether whether there was an active father in the life. One of the studies looked at that, and they found that children that didn't have good parental role models of impulse control were much more likely to eat the marshmallow. So beyond working on impulse control with your kid, you got to work on it with yourself. If you want something very badly and your kid sees that you wait 5, 10 minutes before giving it to yourself because that's responsible, then that child grows up to be the kind of person who not only passes the marshmallow test but also passes the SAT and hopefully is able to kick addictions if they start with them and ultimately become successful enough that you don't have to save for retirement. So I don't have to have my kid wait for the marshmallow. I have to wait for the marshmallow. It's kind of the story of fatherhood, man. You don't really have to make your kids better. You just have to be great and make sure they're watching. Well, that's a good place to leave it for. Oh, hey, signs. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Joshua. So you might think that all I do all day is record this podcast, but you'd be wrong. I'm also a children's book author. I've written two books, and the second one just came out. It's called What's Cooking, and it's today's fatherly endorsement. For most of my career, I've been a food writer. I was a restaurant critic, and I've written cookbooks and that whole thing. But what I found is when I came home, all I would end up doing is arguing with my older son, Achilles, about what he ate. And it was a real bummer for me because I wanted to communicate that, hey, food is cool. It's something that's fun, and it's what I'm passionate about. But we ended up just fighting about whether he's going to eat chicken tenders or not, eat fish sticks or not. Turns out he only eats shrimp tempura. But during that struggle, I was looking for books about food. And the books either anthropomorphized food, like 
a hot dog with eyes and nose and a mouth, which always seemed messed up to me anyway, because the hot dog used to be alive. It was just called a cow. Or a book that was sort of didactic and saying, you should eat your vegetables, you should eat these proteins, whatever. And that was a whole thing I was trying to avoid anyway. I didn't want a power struggle. So I wrote, can I eat that, which is just like, if I eat a orange and olive, can I eat a sea urchin? Which, yes, you can. It's called uni. As a way for Achilles and I just to talk about food. The book did well, and so I wrote a sequel. It's called What's Cooking? Words by me, illustrations by Julia Rothman. But instead of my blathering on about it, we're going to hear a little bit of it. And I'll tell you why. I didn't realize it was a song when I was writing it, or a poem or whatever. I just thought it was a book. But a couple of weeks back doing a reading, I invited my two friends, Dan and Kyle, the What's Cooking Hot 2, to play along behind me as I read the book. And it turned out really well. So what you're going to hear now is Dan on drums and Adi Meyerson, a wonderful bass player playing double bass, in a dramatic reading of What's Cooking. Enjoy. What's Cooking by Joshua David Stein. What's in the cupboards and what's in the drawer? The bread on the counter, the crumbs on the floor. The smells of cooking, the sound of stirring, and the pleasant hum of mixers purring. Enter, sniff, and feel the thrill. The kitchen is a wonderland. Wander in and understand. If I fry a strip of potato and a slice of tomato, can I fry a scoop of gelato? Actually, yes. Gelato is a type of ice cream, and fried ice cream is a real dessert. It's warm on the outside, cold on the inside, and delicious all around. Can I can clams? Can I can jams? Can I jam clams? Clams you can can, chopped up in clam juice. Jams you can can and you can jar it too. And you can't jam clams, but you can certainly jelly them. That's called clams en gelée. can be tossed to mix up all the ingredients, but it should never be thrown. Dough you can throw, though. That's how pizza is made. It's thrown up in the air and spun round and round. The person who throws it is called a pizzaiolo or a pizzaiola. It's his or her job to catch it, too. Eggs. 
bitten and broken, scrambled and fried, cured, coddled, baked, and tried. If turkeys are stuffed with stuffing, what else can I stuff? Lots of stuff. You can stuff peppers with rice and cabbage with meat and even meat with meat. That's called a ballotine. Well, if I stuff stuffing, can I dump dumplings? No, you can stuff dumplings though. With pork for gyoza in Japan. With cheese for pierogi in Ukraine. With soup for Shaolong Bao or soup dumplings in China. Is this a very old grape or a very new raisin? Is this a very old grape or a very new raisin? Is this a very old grape or a very new raisin? If I eat leftovers, can I eat leftunders? It depends. Left underwear. Do frozen peas grow on frozen trees? No. Frozen peas start off as fresh peas grown on vines. But after they're harvested, they're frozen, so they last longer. The spinach is creamed and the snow peas are steamed. The garlic is minced and the lettuce is rinsed. The cucumbers are cubed and the squash has been squared. The tomatoes are stewed and the parsnip is pared. The beef has been roasted, the bread has been toasted. All the eggs have been boiled. The salmon is broiled. Melon is scooped, lemon is zested. Cookies are cooked, cookies are tested. Now the only question is, who does the dishes? Oh, a potato. Can I mush it, mash it, push it, patch it, splash it, dream it, peel it, steal it, cheese it, sneeze it, crisp it, cream it, couch it, smoke it, Hang it, chill it, stretch it, hatch it, throw it, catch it, spin it, stain it, poach it, paint it, pickle it, tickle it, freckle it, fry it, free it. Let it be it. Well, that does it for this episode of the Fatherly Podcast. Join us next week for a special episode of the Best of the Fatherly Questionnaire, featuring Michael Strahan, Sterling K. Brown, Jonathan Katz, and Ty Burrell. Today's show was produced by Kelly Kramer. The theme music is by Kyle Forrester, with vocals by Augie Hierenstein. Special thanks to Josh Krish, Andrew Berman, and the rest of the team at Fatherly. For more Fatherly content, follow us on Facebook at FatherlyHQ. For my random thoughts on life, poor usage of hashtags, and mildly witty dad jokes, follow me on Twitter at FakeJoshStein. B 
Be sure to subscribe to the Fatherly Podcast with iHeartRadio on your favorite podcast app. And stay tuned for updates on upcoming episodes.